Welcome to the Full Dig Podcast. Today we are looking at a new series, The Promises from the Upper Room. In today's podcast, we will discuss Pastor Steve's sermon, The Promise of Home, from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Join Pastors Kirk Sexton and Bruce Johnson as we discuss the place where Jesus is going and the hope of heaven for us. Welcome to the Full Dig Podcast. I am Pastor Kirk Sexton, and with me, as always, is my good friend and colleague, Pastor Bruce Johnson. It seems I follow you around, Kirk. Wherever you are podcasting, I seem to be there, too. We're a couple of podcasters making our way in the world. Yes. Poor dogs that we are. (laughs) We are starting a new series on the promises from the upper room. Yeah, a great Lenten series as we prepare for Easter, and we're looking at... The longest discourse of Jesus in the entire Bible. Uh, an easy way to explain that is if you have a red letter Bible or you have a friend that has a red letter Bible, that's a Bible that has all of the words of Jesus in red. This is the biggest section of red in the Bible, hmm. the, the upper room discourses from the Gospel of John. It's not the largest sermon of Jesus. The largest sermon of Jesus or longest sermon of Jesus is the Sermon on the Mount, which right. you would expect from Matthew's Gospel chapters 15, 16, and 17. But the upper room discourse in the Gospel of John goes uh, all the way from chapter 13, where Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, to the great heavenly or high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. Mm -hmm. So all of that happens in one place, Jesus and his disciples. And uh, we have um, the Last Supper take place in that same room where they are. Jesus predicts his betrayal by one of them. Uh, so a lot is going on there, mm. and, and Jesus is giving his kind of a, his last bit of counsel to his disciples before he goes to the cross. And Pastor Steve started us off on Sunday looking at John fourteen one through five. Would uh, right? He read verses one through three. Oh, one through three. That's and right. we're going to read a couple more just to let us know that it is a discourse, a mm. sermon is when you don't have people talking back to you, at least the normal sermons that we're used to. And the Sermon on the Mount is like that. It's one continuous monologue of Jesus. But this is a discourse, so there's back and forth with, with uh, Jesus and his disciples. So we'll read in chapter 14, Jesus saying something, and then chapter 5 is a question from one of the disciples. Okay. Do you want me to read it? or do you Yeah, go ahead and read that, Kirk. John 14, and I'm going to read 1 through 5. 1 through 5, that's right. right. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? So again, that's just an example that of Jesus as he talks to his disciples. They're asking Jesus questions or making statements and trying to, to figure out what in the world he's trying to tell them. It must have been very hard for them. Jesus, before this, had begun to talk to his disciples about the fact that he was going to die. Right. And they can't get their minds and imaginations around that. Mm-hmm. And uh, here it's very close to the time he goes to the cross. And it's a 
tough time for Jesus, and the disciples don't quite get what's going on still. Yeah, I thought Steve did a good job of setting the text in its proper context, tying 13, the end of 13 to 14, because he talked about how the numbers and chapters, that's a later addition to our Bibles, so that discourse probably would have continued from 13. And you can understand why they did that. It's much handier to say it's in a particular chapter of John than in the Gospel of John somewhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, The chapters and the verses give us a... Uh, a little bit of aid as we're trying to figure out what part of the gospel it's in. I wanted to uh, also make a little plug for the for the Vesper services because you mentioned the Sermon on the Mount. Well, I think our our Vespers are all doing dealing with the the Sermon on the Mount. That's right, and the particular part in the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. So all those blessed are are happy are the people. Uh, who are poor in spirit, uh, those who are peacemakers, and and so on. So Mm -hmm. we'll take each of those declarations of being blessed, being happy, uh, being uh, fortunate, and what Jesus says about that, and drawing in from other scriptures like the Psalms to talk about that. Yeah. Well, um, this Upper Room Discourse, um, Pastor Steve focused on the idea which was a bit of a surprise for me. Uh, he focused on the idea of Jesus being the sort of he, his preparation, his preparation for us, these rooms, this this dwelling place. Uh, right. He focused on preparing the rooms, and we want to focus on the rooms. What's meant by the rooms? Right. And right. Jesus, or, uh, Steve uh, here is taking Jesus and, and saying, well, it's Jesus going to the cross. That's how he prepares and makes certain that we'll have a place uh, with him uh, for all eternity. And Steve sort of simply said that it was um, him going to the cross. Yeah, and even throughout the analogy, again, if we're focusing on what does it mean, the dwelling places we focus on? Well, what will our digs be like in heaven? You know, uh, will it be Pastor Steve's dream of uh, putting greens and a big comfortable chair and other things like that, a, a man cave? Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's right. But, but really the focus here is on being with Christ, being united with Christ. Um, you know, I was thinking, because this year is the 40th wedding anniversary of me and my beloved bride. Oh, I didn't know. And I remember um, at some point when we were dating, figuring out the fact that I felt most at home when I was with her. And mm. I still feel most at home when I'm with Lori. Mm. And here we are being told that our home's with Christ. And Jesus has given the assurance, you will have a place. We'll be together. Well, I don't want to steal your thunder, but C.S. Lewis said that we had this longing in our hearts, and I think the C.S. Lewis journal sort of is named after that longing, right? The longing, exactly. Uh, and that's a takeoff on St. Augustine, who talked about uh, we have a this longing that can't be fulfilled until we find our rest in God. Mm. Yeah, that same sort of longing. Mm. So we have a home. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of that, our hearts become Christ's home. Do you want to talk about some of these uh, Greek? Yeah, uh, let's things? talk about, because Steve covered the 
preparation part. So let's get into the that word for dwelling places and other words that are similar in these first couple of verses of John 14. Okay. So first, uh, in chapter 14, verse 2, Jesus says, In my Father's house, so what's the word there for house? And that's oikos. It's a common uh, word for house. It can also be used symbolically of uh, not only the physical dwelling, but the people that are there, the kind of the household, it's used that way. It can even be used for a clan or can be used for a certain place within a larger building. So a pretty versatile word. That's oikos in my father's oikos in my father's house. Mm-hmm. Are many dwelling places. And there it switches to a different word, monet. Monet means a dwelling, a room, an abode. And it can also be used in the sense of staying or tearing. So there's a range of meaning for that. How and about the, abiding? Uh, abiding. Uh, uh, Monet can mean abiding, mm. yeah, tearing. Yeah, it can mean all those kind of things. And then later on, in verse 3, Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, there he uses a third Greek word, that's tapas, from which we get the English word topography. Mm. So uh, that's used of uh, a place, a region, or so on. So a, a range of meanings in all of these Greek words that are, are used. Mm. It's saying there's a place for you. Some of the early Greek or Christian commentaries uh, in Greek and in Latin that were talking about this said, well, gosh, are there going to be empty rooms in heaven? And the response was, no, God's got this. He's got it figured out. Mm. All, every room will be filled that God prepares. Mm. Um, and then another uh, old writer said, well, you know, if there's a place for us, you know, we, we know how it works in our lives. Mm. If we're going someplace and we need to have a hotel room, we make a reservation ahead. It says God's made the reservation for us. Mm. There's going to be a place for us. What about the idea of the bodily resurrection uh, in in relation to place? It makes me think that it has to be a real place for a real body, even if it's a transformed body, to be uh, in heaven. What do you think of that? Yes, uh, if there's a resurrection, that means that somehow our... Um, souls are reunited with a body, a different kind of body, mm-hmm. one that doesn't grow old or tired or weak. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we're, um, if we die before Christ returns, we are go to be with Christ immediately. Yeah, we're going to look at a little bit more of those scriptures that talk about heaven in that way. But you, I wanted to ask you, Bruce, um, I wanted to ask you this question. So when I'm thinking of Jesus preparing a place for us. I, I'm thinking of the Jesus as the bridegroom. Yes. And he goes, you know, back to his father's house and builds an apartment for his new bride. Right. I mean, that's kind of the, one of those pre- pre- preparations. It's not what's not Steve. What Steve was talking about was that his preparation was going to the cross. Right. But I kind of, I, I was just remind. I don't know. I was just thinking of the bridegroom when I was uh, hearing that sermon. All right. You can go several different ways with that. And you often find that in the Gospel of John where Jesus says something and it can be taken more than one way. Mm-hmm. Uh, like in John chapter 3 where Jesus says we need to be born again, uh, which can also, the same Greek phrase can mean 
born from above. Mm-hmm. So what does Jesus mean at that point? Mm-hmm. And it's the the double entendre of meaning uh, that is very much part of John's style as he tells about Jesus' teaching. We find a lot of those uh, double meanings in John where we're supposed to get what the people who are initially talking with Jesus don't, don't quite figure out. Well, in one time, the... Uh the narrator, if you will, John explains when they were marveling at the great stones of the temple, and he said that this temple is going to be torn down and rebuilt. And uh, John says he was speaking of his body or of himself. Right. Destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the, all oh, that one maybe doesn't apply because he, because they do explain at that time, but that's right. So I was thinking of temple too, as a place it's where God dwells with his people. And, and that maybe we would be part of, uh, that temple, you know, um, the real temple, the true temple in, in heaven. That's right. We, we are the temple. We are the dwelling place right. of God. Right. right. Spiritually. Yeah. So you can think of the preparation that Jesus does is the preparation him going to the cross. Yes. Is that preparing a place for us in life eternal? Yes. Is it preparing us now so that we can have God dwelling and God's spirit dwelling in our lives now? Yes. Christ prepares in all those ways for us. Right. But I think Steve was really talking about the idea of Jesus preparing a place for for us in heaven by removing the obstacle of sin. Remember when he talked about having to put on new clothes. You couldn't just go to heaven dressed like you are. Right. Remember that? We we think about what our dwelling place in heaven will look like. Mm -hmm. And he turned that around and said, what about what we will look like and how we will be adorned? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I I found that very helpful. Yeah, I did too. It's very good. Well, should we look at some... We have some scriptures that that come from other places, um, talking about the hope of heaven. Yeah, and I think that's helpful. You know, let's, instead of just um, making general statements or specific statements, let's look at what Scripture tells us of the hope of heaven. Mm-hmm. So one of these comes from Second Corinthians chapter 5. I'll read verses 6 through 10. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So that's where we get the concept that to be away from the body is to be with yeah. the Lord. Yeah, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Yeah, it's from that. So, And that's a great promise. Mm-hmm. So that uh, when I think of loved ones who, who died, uh, believing Jesus, loving Jesus, they're with the Lord right now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. But that's not their final state because later we have promises about uh, a resurrection yet mm-hmm. to come. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So, Kirk, why don't you read that passage from John chapter 5? So, it's in the same gospel that we're getting this great upper room discourse. But here, Jesus earlier is talking about the hope of heaven. 
Yeah, this comes from John chapter 5, verses 28 through 29. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So it's implying that there is a judgment that will happen. Um, what, what we do matters uh, in this life, and that there will be an accounting of all of that. And that's real helpful when you think of um, sometimes the accounting doesn't happen uh, in this life. You think about people that uh, do bad things, and they seem to get away with it, and they die and mm-hmm. are never brought to judgment. There is a judgment yet to come. And there are people that um, uh, maybe die in obscurity, but but they love Jesus tremendously. They they tried to make life not about themselves, but but about God and others. Mm. Uh, and and that will be affirmed and proclaimed. Everything that we do will be brought to judgment. You know, I had this. Um quote from Fleming Rutledge and she wrote a book called Crucifixion Ah. she said the paradox of the cross demonstrates the victorious love of God for us at the same time it shows forth his judgment upon sin right he became sin who knew no sin Mm -hmm. it really is a paradox well here's another um, passage from the New Testament this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 I'll read verse 35 and a little later in the chapter, verses 51 through 56. This is St. Paul writing. But some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe themselves with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Very triumphal words, Kirk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it talks about that, that transformation of, the, uh, of our bodies, too. Right. Uh, our final state is not to be bodiless souls, but to be re-embodied with the resurrection body. He's responding to the Greek culture that saw that you had a body and you had a soul. And the body they saw as corrupt and not redeemable. And why would you ever want to have that old body again? Right. So he's kind of answering that in that scripture. He's saying, this is not that same body. This is a new and transformed body. Right. And, of course, the perspective, if you go back to Genesis, is that God made the physical world, and the physical world is good. Mm -hmm. And when God was finished with creating that world, God says, not only is it good, it's very good. Right. Very very different perspective. The physical world is not bad. It's got problems, but it's not bad. 
that where, O oh, death, is your victory, where, O oh, death, is your sting. That's Hosea, right? Uh, I believe that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty, pretty cool. Paul is a great exegete yes. of the Old Testament for us. <laughs> well, our other scripture is one that I'm very fond of. Uh, you know, I use... Um, the John 14 text, oftentimes in memorial services, right. I, I use this this text I'm going to read now from 1 Thessalonians, uh, oftentimes in memorials. Um, so I'm, I'm familiar with this one. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him, according to the Lord's word. We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we'll be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's First Thessalonians 4, uh, and verses 13 and 18. And notice how that ends, Kirk. Uh, we will be with the Lord forever. Again, the emphasis on eternal life is being with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we will see that later on as we continue this journey through the upper room discourses in the Gospel of John, where the emphasis is uh, on the kingdom of God. We should focus on who the king is, Jesus. Right. And uh, to live forever in his kingdom means living forever with Jesus. And we'll see that uh, next week as we go a little bit further into this, and where Jesus begins to answer the question, that's brought up by Thomas. How can we know the way? Mm. And Jesus begins to answer that. Right. Well, one thing I thought about when I was reading this this morning that I hadn't ever thought about before was the fact that the people, if the Lord was to come now, right, the, 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 those that have died in Christ have, are rise, raised first, Yes, and then then we are somehow transformed, and we're 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 lifted into the sky, and we're we're emissaries. We're, we 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 bring the Lord down to earth here, and He begins to redeem this world, right? Yes. So I was thinking about this prayer that I you know I'm, it's Maranatha, right? Yes. Come, Lord Jesus. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. So I was thinking about that, and that's a a really good prayer because if he comes now, we we won't have to experience the the pain of death. Yes, <laughs> it's just uh, unlike uh, Lazarus, he had to experience the pain of death twice. He died and he was resurrected, and then he had to die again. That's Poor, Lazarus. Poor Lazarus. Poor Lazarus. Poor Lazarus. So, so did this thought come to you before or after breakfast? Is this an empty stomach thought or is this a full stomach thought? Oh, I think it was before I had my green shake. I see, I see. You, you scare me with that green, green shake. <laughs> Coming to church with a green shake, I'm thinking, what's, what's wrong with this man? Green shakes. Yeah. Uh, uh. yeah. 
well, maybe we should turn to archaeology. Maybe archaeology will save us now. Maybe it will. Okay, so uh, let's talk a little bit about the place of the Last Supper, uh, the up, where the Upper Room Discourses take place. So this is traditionally, if you go to Jerusalem today, they'll show you a building and the upper floor of that building, which is called the Cynical. I lived very near this when I lived in Jerusalem. Um, the building has been um, built up and destroyed and built up and destroyed several times. So uh, it, it's a very curious room up there where you have three different columns and they all have, they look different, different architectural elements. And you see that they're from different architectural periods in the Middle Ages sometimes. And it's hard to figure out exactly what's going on. Um, but it is in the region where the upper room must have taken place. Uh, you remember, Kirk, we've talked about Jerusalem being kind of like a pitchfork in terms of it has three valleys, uh, a valley on the eastern side called the Kidron Valley, valley on the western side, which is the Hinnom Valley, and then a valley in the middle, which is called the Valley or the Central Valley. And uh, that, that gives us uh, two main hills in Jerusalem. You have the eastern hill, that includes the uh, oldest part of Jerusalem, the city of David, and uh, to the north of that, the Temple Mount. Mm. And then you have the western hill of Jerusalem. So I lived on the western hill of Jerusalem uh, when I was uh, a student there back many years ago. And there was an opportunity to do a lot of archaeological work on the western hill after the Six-Day War. Uh, during the Jordanian occupation of the walled city of Jerusalem, uh, East Jerusalem. There, uh, the Jordanians went and destroyed the Jewish quarter of the old city. And so before it was built up again, the Israeli government said, hey, this is a good time to do some archaeology there. And as they explored the Western Hill, they found out it's the high rent district of New Testament Jerusalem. Mm. It's the Paradise Valley of Jerusalem, wow. if you want. Yeah. And we know that because of the size of the buildings that were uncovered there from the time of Jesus. They all had um, very thick foundations. In fact, there was one um, very large uh, palatial building. Sometimes it's called the um, palatial mansion. It was 6,500 square feet. I mean, that is Paradise Valley standards right now. And that was a dwelling in the time of Jesus on the Western Hill. It wasn't a uh, royal palace, but it was very palatial. And uh, there's thought that this was the home of Annas, who was a, of the high priestly family. Mm. So uh, very interesting there. So excavations were done between 1969 and 1982 of that Western quarter of Jerusalem. So they were still going on just finishing up when I lived there. So it's really fascinating. So the general location on the Western Hill makes a lot of sense. Well, and what about the, uh, the? I've seen pictures of the upper room for visitors to Jerusalem. That's not the place. No, but it seems to be a place that was honored. Now, remember, from the time that Jesus died in Jerusalem, there was continuous occupation of, of that city from Jesus' day to our own day. The city was destroyed, uh, but there were always people that were in the environments of Jerusalem. So it was never a point where it was aban abandoned for many generations. Mm -hmm. So this continuous knowledge. So probably the, the Christians that continued to um, live there, 
would have remembered the place. They would have remembered the place where Jesus died and was buried. Mm-hmm. And they would have remembered the uh, upper room, which, according to the New Testament, is also the place where the disciples gathered, waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So a very significant place for like Christians. Mm. Okay. So we'll have more information about the Western Hill and the archaeology of the Last Supper as we continue with this series of the Full Dig podcast. And then on Monday, Thursday, I'll do a, um, as we celebrate communion on Monday, Thursday, mm-hmm. here at the Mountain View Presbyterian Church, I'll have a special presentation on archaeology in the Last Supper. So kind of culminating on all of uh, what we'll observe here in the Full Dig podcast. Good teaser, Bruce. There you go. Well, each, um, every week in our Full Dig podcast, we we have a few features. Um, one of those is looking at our eco-denominational confessional standards. And do you have something from us from the Heidelberg Catechism this week? I do. So this is from the eco-confessional standards, and we'll also look at the eco-essential tenets and what they tell us about our hope for heaven. So this comes from the section of the Heidelberg Catechism where it's explaining the Apostles' Creed and different phrases of the Apostles' Creed. Mm. So that begins to ask the question about each phrase we find in the Apostles' Creed. Mm -hmm. So when we come to the phrase, life everlasting, the question is, obviously, what comfort does the article concerning the life everlasting give you? And the answer is, since I now feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy. I love that that the first indication that we're bound from heaven is that I have joy in my heart that lasts. I shall possess after this life perfect blessedness, which no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of humanity conceived, and thereby praise God forever. Mm. I love that. Yeah, it's very good. Question 59 says, But how does it help you now that you believe all this? And the answer is, I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir of eternal life. Something we need to remind one another, you know, mm-hmm. that we are really forgiven. Mm-hmm. And we try to do that in worship, don't we? Yes. Uh, remind each other we, we confess our sins and then we have that assurance of God's pardon. And question 60 in the Heidelberg Catechism says, how are you righteous before God? And the answer given here is, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. God grants me the benefits of the perfect expiation of Christ, imputing to me his righteousness and holiness, as though I had never committed a single sin or had ever been sinful. I have fulfilled all the obedience which Christ has carried out for me, if only I accept such grace with a trusting heart. This is in spite of the fact that my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have not kept any one of them and that I am still ever prone to all that is evil. Mm. In other words, you know, we we get that nagging voice in our head that says, that can't be true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're not really worthy of this and you know you're not worthy of of this. And and the declaration here is, well, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. It's true. I really have been forgiven. Well, and we do all... I think a really good job in Presbyterian worship to to affirm that idea. Yeah, we talk a lot about grace, don't we? Yes, a lot we about do. Grace. 
Question 61 says, Why do you say that you are righteous by faith alone, not because I please God by virtue of the worthiness of my faith, but because the satisfaction of righteousness and holiness of Christ alone are my righteousness before God, and because I can accept it and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. So it's really true, mm-hmm. and it's really a gift. Saved by grace through faith, not of works. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, not only does Scripture tell us that again and again, but uh, we sing that in so many mm-hmm. songs and hymns. Um, so we have a, a pattern to remind ourselves about that as we come together in worship. But that's one that I still think people really struggle with. And oh, it's yeah. really good to remind us that it's grace. And sometimes uh, I've had the occasion to be with uh, people at the end of their lives, and they've said something to the effect, I hope I've done enough. Yeah, yeah. And, and these are people who've been lifelong Christians. Yeah, so it's pretty deep, that uh, that sense that maybe we haven't done enough. Mm-hmm. So it, it's really important that we again and again say, it's all a gift, mm-hmm. all a gift. Uh, there's that great story of Martin Luther, the great German reformer. At the end of his life, some of his last words were, we're all paupers. Mm. We're all just beggars. Yeah, It's all a gift. Right. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, you also have something from our eco-essential tenets. Yes, this is right at the very end of the essential tenets. The essential tenets ends by saying, well, how does God guide us in what's good and right? And it says, well, a lot of ways, but Ten Commandments are a good place to go. And it begins talking about each of the Ten Commandments. And after it's gone through that list of ten, this is what the essential tenets says. This is how it wraps up all of that summation of the faith that we've been handed down. In Jesus Christ, we see the perfect expression of God's holy will for human beings offered to God in our place. His holy life must now become our holy life. In Christ, God's will is now written on our hearts, and we look forward to the day when we will be so confirmed in His holiness that we will no longer be able to sin. As the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, Jesus leads us along the path of life towards that goal, bringing us to ever deeper intimacy with the triune God in whose presence is fullness of joy. Hmm. So you'll notice this emphasis on joy. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to do God's will is joy. Mm-hmm. And uh, to receive grace is joy. And God is at work in us. So it's not that we are forgiven by God and left unchanged. We are forgiven by God, and it becomes um, a passion for us to to please God. Mm. And we look towards the day when we will be able to please God perfectly. Um, not that it'll happen soon, right. but but one day in heaven. There yeah. should be no sourpuss Christians. No sourpuss Christians. Right. We'll, we'll make a sign. We'll <laughs> post it in the sanctuary. No sourpuss Christians. Well, one of the regular features of the Full Dig podcast is a quote from C.S. Lewis. And what do you have for us today? Well, I have something from mere Christianity. You thought I was going to go with something from the great divorce, right? Yes. No, no, we're going to go with the mere Christianity. <laughs> and uh, so here is where Lewis is talking about how we are um, 
infected by the life of Christ, that, that uh, what Christ has done for us, it changes who we are. So Lewis, Lewis begins talking about by saying, and now what does it matter? It matters more than anything else in the world. The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-personal life is to be played out in each one of us, or putting it the other way around, each one of us has got to enter the pattern, take his place in that dance. There is no other way to the happiness for which we were made. Good things, as well as bad, you know, are cut by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prize which God could, could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Once a man has been united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? Mm. So, it, it, in other words, it just makes sense. The Lord and giver of life, if we are close to him, we will have his life. Mm. That's great. Well, you chose a, a nice quote there. Well, thank you, thank you. Okay. Now, now, Kirk, another feature is we often have, usually have, a quote from our Reform heritage. Yes, um, I don't know if this would be considered heritage because um, this is a contemporary Reformed person. A, a, a soon-to-be heritage. Maybe. And, and, and part of our, our tribe now. Well, he is. He's a, This is from uh, Richard Phillips. He's a, a PCA pastor. All right. He's a... Uh, That's Presbyterian Church in America for yeah. those who are wondering about the uh, alphabets we're throwing around here. Right. And he is a prolific writer. And uh, this is from his uh, commentary on John. And uh, he is, I, this series, I can't remember what the name of the series is, but it's a, a reformed series. And um, and he, I, he's like one of the, the main editors too. So, okay. Yeah. Right. Somebody that knows his stuff. I think he knows his stuff. Okay. He says this, um, Christians are the world's great realists but also the world's great optimists. Trusting God to uphold us, we can be honest about the world and life since we look ahead to heaven where our hopes are held fast and secure. Consider the matter of death. Christians are not reduced merely to saying that someone has passed away, but we face the truth that he or she has died. To die is to suffer death, and we know that death is real. The same is true of life's other woes, sickness, poverty, injustice, loneliness, and fear. Christians can be realists about all of these ills because of the great hope that we have with the Lord. Amen to that. Yeah. I thought uh, that was pretty good. That is good. Uh, the, the hope of heaven is a real hope. Yes. Heaven is a real place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I you just wanted to... Uh, plug um, as we close here um, I've been looking at the devotional from uh, Gospel in Life it's uh, 
what's his name? I'm drawing a blank on his name. Uh, Keller's. Oh, Tim Keller. Uh, Tim Keller's church um, produces that. It's called Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. That's right. And they're producing these um, devotionals. They're free of charge. You just go on to Gospel in Life, and they send them to your email each day. So if it would be all right, Bruce, I thought uh, the prayer from yesterday would be pretty good for us to close. Okay. Why don't you use that prayer to close? Let us pray. Holy Father, I thank and praise you for sending your only Son into the world. Give me eyes to see the beauty and the perfection of Jesus, the spotless Lamb who willingly sacrificed himself so that I might receive forgiveness and new life. And in the light of your grace, may I live a life of faith, trusting in your goodness and laying down my life for others. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Kirk. Thank you, Bruce.